welcome our impressionable audiences to the fourth episode of our podcast, The Global Overpass, where we debate and deliver the best hard-hitting analysis of political, social, and cultural issues in current news stories from across the globe. My name is Michael Poon, and here again is my co-host, Andy St. John. Hello, everyone. In this fourth episode, we have tons to cover this week from the West to the East. Uh, to give a brief intro to our podcast, our uh, podcast seeks to educate, debate, and analyze political, social, and cultural issues with the overall goal of allowing the public to understand a global perspective towards contributing to the discussion of global affairs. So who better than us to be your guides, two poli-sci and journal students obsessed with news to break down these subjects. Also, to explain how our podcast works, we review two to three news stories derived from news articles that have happened before and during the third week of March for this episode that's worth talking about more in detail. Then we discuss, analyze, and debate the news story and hope we could educate or give a little more context to everyone who is listening on the issues that are focused on from these news stories. So, for today's episode, we are joined with our guest, Alvin Tejo. So Alvin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, thanks, Michael and Andy. Um, <laughs> this is a—it's always fun to come on and and talk about you know important issues facing people uh, here, not just here in Ontario, but also across Canada. And um, you know, really excited to be here today to uh, have this discussion with you. Um, I mean, just as quickly as I possibly can. You know, I'm a dad. Uh, I've got three young kids that are six, eight, and ten years old. Um, I've worked a lot uh, in uh, colleges and universities and in government, um, but uh, I think most people probably know me from uh, some of my advocacy work in and around supporting students, um, supporting parents with uh, childcare advocacy, supporting um, uh, you know lower income folks with uh, my push for basic income, um, and uh, and I've turned that into a couple of runs. Uh, in the political realm with uh, being one of the candidates for uh, Kathleen Wynne's Liberals back in 2018 in Oakville, North Burlington, um, and then running to replace her in the uh, 2020 uh, leadership election uh, for the Ontario Liberal Party. So um, currently still working at the colleges and universities, but uh, you know it's, it's always been a passion of mine to uh, try and help people through advocacy work and, and getting the message out of you know, what's important and what we need to fight for. Yeah. Um, so the biggest question for me is, uh, what inspired you to run for the Ontario Liberal Party in the first place? You know, I spent a couple of years uh, working in the Ontario government. And I think when you see how the sausage is made and you see that, um, you know, you can have a real impact if you get the right people together and uh, you have the right motivations, um, then you can do a lot of good. And uh, I had been pushing since I, you know, became a father, uh, the idea of expanded childcare here in Ontario. Uh, and Premier Wynne at the time announced um, an expanded childcare plan that would have started at two and a half years old, uh, that it would essentially have been universal uh, for all parents who uh, wanted to put their children into care. And I saw, you know, firsthand how much a program like Full Day Kindergarten had uh, on, on young parents and young families. And when you start looking at the costs of childcare on a family, on women especially, who uh, bear the brunt of most of childcare, um, you start realizing that uh, not having a public system support uh, childcare costs is just 
um, not acceptable in today's age. We were living in Toronto. Uh, we were spending about fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars a month per child, and with two kids in childcare, um, that was adding up to over thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars a year in childcare costs that you have to pay up front. To the point where my wife and I had to sit down and figure out: Does it even make sense for one of us to go to work? And that's a conversation I know a lot of couples have. And because of one reason or another, you know, a lot of women make fewer dollars than men and they end up staying home and taking care of the kids. And, you know, that affects their careers moving forward. And so, you know, I continue to believe to this day that it's unacceptable that that we put that burden uh, onto onto women uh, and that we have the capacity and the capability of uh, having an enhanced uh, child care system here in Canada, here in Ontario, and that if we invested in it, we would see 40,000 more women work full time. We would see uh, billions of dollars added to the economy. Uh, and these aren't things that we made up. These are things that uh, groups like Equal Voice say are the number one thing you can do to fix the gender wage gap. These are things that economists have done studies on to say that uh, this is how much it would benefit the uh, the economy if we were doing these things. So, you know, first of all, that was one of the reasons I, I, I knew I had to be involved and I knew I had to uh, be a part of a party that we're fighting for families. And second, uh, in my riding in Oakville, North Burlington, you know, we had a lot of what we're talking about right now this week around uh, development in the Greenbelt and, you know, fighting for uh, keeping areas sustainable uh, and protecting the environment were, was important. And it's important to, you know, most people of our generation and that this party needed a new a new voice and um, advocates who were going to fight for that in their communities. And I felt it was important that I added my voice to that. Well, another another key issue you sort of ran for, if I can remember, was you sort of wasn't universal basic income, but you sort of advocated for uh, basic income for all Ontarians over the age of 18. So why why do you think Ontario needs that in particular? So just to clarify, Andy, I mean, um, you know, the provincial government, the liberal government, Kathleen's government had a pilot for uh, universal basic income. Uh, I supported that pilot and uh, wanted to see it uh, pushed through. Um, Doug Ford and the Conservatives also supported the pilot and promised uh, these four or 5,000 families across Ontario that they would continue it. They canceled it almost immediately, leaving people um, with their, you know, leaving people with leases that they couldn't pay, leaving people with um, who were in, you know, some of the most dire situations without, um, w- without this additional benefit that they were expecting to have for a few years. And so when I decided I was going to run for the leadership of the party, I looked more and more into the people who were affected by this. And when you realize how much um, these were real people, how much, you know, the it wasn't just, you know, the single moms and the person on the street, like these are real, honest to God, human beings who lived in Hamilton, who lived in Peterborough, who lived in Thunder Bay, who lived in Brantford, who I met. And they told me these stories of hope that when they had the basic income, it wasn't a lot. We we're talking about $1,400 a month. When they had a basic income, they finally felt stable. They finally felt secure. They felt that they were working three, four jobs at minimum wage, yet it was never enough. But what this meant was that they could quit the really, really crappy jobs 
and they could focus on themselves. They could focus on getting a better job. They could focus on uh, an education. They could focus on childcare if that's what they wanted to do with their time. They could move to a better neighborhood. It provided them more food security. Um, it provided them, you know, the basic dignity of being a human being in this country. And it made you think that we've had the capacity and capability to do this all along, and yet we refuse to. Why? Why is it? Why do we believe that, you know, poor people are going to take advantage of the system? And why is that more egregious than the top 0.1% taking advantage of the system and, you know, keeping all of that for themselves? And what can we do to fight for these people who don't have anyone uh, advocating for them, who um, actually, if you look at the numbers, cost the system more by not implementing a program like this, when you force them to go through social assistance, when you force them to go use the system as it exists. My wife works in an emergency and she's worked in an emergency for almost 15 years. And she will tell me every single day somebody comes in who doesn't need to be there because it's cold outside or because they're hungry, because we're relying on the healthcare system or the justice system or whatever else it is to support people who can't, uh, who can't make it without income, right? We think about the fact that food banks exist because people don't have enough food to eat. And then you think, what's the solution? Well, we need more food banks to give. No, people need money. If you needed food, you don't want to go somewhere and ask for handouts from someone else who was generous enough to give you uh, to have you know food available. Food banks are an indication that the system has failed. But what people need is people need dollars. And people need to be able to use those dollars at a grocery store or to buy themselves clothes, right? When we looked at the results of the basic income pilot in Ontario, we saw that um, employment actually went up. People worked more, right? That nobody wants to live on, on $1,400 a month. Um, but what they were living on before was not enough. So we gave them a base, right? We gave them a floor in which to stand on so that they could excel and and find a better life for themselves and for their families. So I thought it was incredibly important that we said we were going to do this. We don't need more studies, Andy. We don't need more studies to see whether or not a base income works because there have been dozens of pilots across the world, including here in Canada. We, you know, we did one and I don't want to harp on this too long, but, you know, there was one that ran for four years in Manitoba. The Mincom study ran for four years, and they saw three unbelievable numbers at the end of this process. They saw uh, an increase of high school graduations by 33%, by over a third. They saw um, hospital visits go down by 8.5%. 8.5%. Think of what that would be in terms of billions of dollars when you extrapolate it across a province as large as Ontario. And lastly, they saw domestic violence go down 44% over four years. Because what do people fight about? People fight about money. And domestic violence, I mean, there's absolutely zero excuse uh, for any domestic violence. Um, but you can understand that the causes of some of that would be, you know, financial hardship, right? So, you know, a basic income can do a lot for that. And I thought, you know, this absolutely, if this is going to be a campaign of big ideas, should be a central tenant of our campaign. And, you know, we got all sorts of people supporting it, not just people who are anti-poverty, but people who are pro-economy, right? There are, we had uh, hundreds of CEOs who have signed a letter saying that um, a basic income would be good for the economy um, because it provides 
people more purchasing power. It, it, it provides them the ability to, you know, vote with their dollars and not be such a burden on the system. And it's actually, if you if you trace the roots of it, a conservative idea. Milton Friedman in the U.S. Um, talked about how this would be uh, a better way than the sort of piecemeal um, social assistance system that we currently have. I think you would have to deliver it in addition to that. You can't completely abandon ODSP or Ontario Works. Um, but as a supplement to it, I think this is um, you know, an unbelievable idea. Um, the next question I have is, so obviously we're in the middle of COVID, we're in the middle of this devastating pandemic. And uh, one unfortunate side effect of that has been uh, the rise of racism. There's been a lot of anti-Asian, a lot of anti-Chinese racism, uh, particularly in the States, but it's been very noticeable here in Canada. So I, I just wanted your uh, opinions on it, just sort of what what can we do to sort of stop the tide of anti-Asian racism in the face of COVID? Because as you're you're an advocate, right? So we just I would love to hear your opinions. On yeah, that. I mean, I mean, obviously, I identify as Asian. I, you know, my parents are ethnic Chinese, uh, born and raised in Indonesia. Uh, they immigrated in the late 70s, and I, I was born here in, in Toronto. Um, but, I, you know, I think one of the most important things is to understand that this has been true for decades, if not centuries, right? It, it's not a new phenomenon. I think the new phenomena is that people are talking about it and or it is less acceptable, yet people seem so afraid to be um, labeled as racist, that they're willing to defend people in, in their racist actions, whether or not they um, may or may not be motivated by race. They might be blinded by race. They might be ignorant to the fact that it exists and that it informs people's decisions and opinions on things. And so, you know, this is very personal for me. I was the first um, and still am the only uh, Asian Canadian ever to run for the leadership of a major political party here in Ontario. Um, and, and, you know, I'll always be the first, hopefully I won't be the only for, uh, for much longer. Um, but you know, it's, it's telling that the model minority myth of, uh, Asian sort of accepting what it's been given to them as a way to, um, earn white people's trust and be the model minority is something that I think finally Asian Canadians are starting to push back against and say this is unacceptable. Um, I've, you know, I would like to think I've had zero tolerance for it um, in my youth and, and growing up, but sometimes you feel sort of exacerbated by it. And do I have the effort to fight for this right now when I can just sort of brush off a, a demeaning comment or tweet or whatever it is and just walk away from it because I'm exhausted from dealing with it all the time. Where it really concerns me is with my children. My children are mixed race. And my wife is French Canadian. Um, but, you know, they proudly show up on Heritage Days dressed in, um, you know, either Chinese or Indonesian clothing to celebrate their heritage. And they and they like to talk about it. Yet there was an incident with my oldest son um, where, you know, people were talking, called him the coronavirus and talked about how they came from China and were teasing him for it, you know, and and then how do you teach them to be resilient, but also, you know, fight for themselves and to understand that that's not acceptable and to try and use it as a teaching moment, right? It's it's a difficult time. And when it turns into othering and when it turns into hatred, um, that's when things start getting violent. And that's when we start, then we need to worry more about what's going on, right? Because 
Um, clearly what happened in the U.S. last week was was ra- whether or not it was racially motivated, it was rooted in racism, right? And I don't think you can claim otherwise, yet people on my Twitter are telling me otherwise. Um, and it's just whether or not we have the strength to continue to argue with them about it. But it, it comes back from the, you know, I was asked dozens of times, where are you, where are you really from? Where, where did you come from? And I was like, I was born in East York General. I don't know what else you want me to say. I mean, I can talk about where my parents came from and their heritage, but I was born and raised here. I went to these, you know, I went to Queens. I went to Harvard. <laughs> I don't know what else you want me to talk about. But, um, you know, I think we want to celebrate our diversity in a positive way while also accepting the fact that um, there's still a lot for us to learn from each other and to try and get each other to accept. Um, so my question is pretty brief. Since you ran for to be a politician, so what qualities do you think makes a good politician in contemporary Canadian society? I, I mean, I have my opinions on what makes a good politician, and I think it starts with empathy. I think it starts with um, making sure the person who is interested in seeking political office is doing it for the right reasons. They want to help people. I genuinely believe that most people who get into politics do fit in that mold and are trying to do the right things and that we just have different opinions of what those things are. I genuinely believe that for most of the time and most of the people who are involved, but there are those bad apples um, in government who are doing it for other reasons. And you know, I think you need to call that out, whether they do it for power or they do it for profit or they're doing it to, I don't know, advance a, a, an agenda that only benefits them somehow. Um, I think you need to find people who understand and are willing to learn what the challenges are that face people. Because if you're not going to be in politics to do something positive and to change something for the better, then I don't know why you're there. What's the point of spending all that time, all that effort, all that money um, it, to get into politics and to try and run if you're not trying to make the world or the country or the province or the city a better place, right? And so I think future politicians, aspiring politicians need to ask themselves really why do they want to do this and how will they benefit um, the causes that they're trying to advocate for. I guess just one more last question for our audience. So what are your future plans? <laughs> Tough to say there, Michael. I mean, I, I certainly want to continue being an advocate for the things that I've been passionate about, um, always around education, because uh, I believe education is the central tenant and what gives Ontarians and Canadians a competitive advantage in the rest of the world. Um, if we are an educated society, it gives us an opportunity to um, continue to better ourselves. Um, and I think it also means that we have better policy solutions at the end of the day and because people will be voting for what they understand um, the system to be and what could uh, fix it. Um, I, I want to continue to be a part of the Ontario Liberal Party and their and their focus on the future. Um, I don't know if that means I'm going to run specifically uh, for um, to be an MPP in a writing or not. Um, we'll, we'll have to sort of wait and see. I think we've got about 14, 15 months to the next uh, general election. Um, obviously, I'm still active in the party and participating in events like this and podcasts and getting involved with um, town halls and debates that are out there. And I'm more than happy to continue to do that. Um, but we'll see if there's a, 
a place for me as as a candidate or not in the next election. Still to be determined. Uh, yeah. Uh, so we're going to move on to our first segment of our discussion today. So we're going to link this to an article that Andy was just talking about. So this article that we have for our first topic is from the Toronto Star. The title is called Ontario Started Well on COVID, but it's settled for a middling performance. And it's written by the Star Editorial Board. So I guess we would like to hear your thoughts first, Elvin. What do you think about Ontario's performance so far? <laughs> so the Toronto Star Editorial Board, I've met them. I met them during the leadership race. I mean, they don't pull any punches. Um, they they want governments to do better. And um, you could argue that they have a bit of a progressive or at least middle of the road stance on a lot of things. But I don't think they're wrong in their assessment here. Uh, I think Doug Ford and his government beat all expectations in the first few months um, through the first wave. You could argue that they did not do enough things in anticipation or in the lead up to a pandemic. Um, But I don't know that I would necessarily put all of that at their feet. I think some of that, um, especially around uh, long-term care homes, uh, having the right number of um, um, assessments or um, inspections, I should say. Uh, I think that you can sort of place at their blame and whether or not we had the appropriate stockpiles federally or provincially, I think there's a lot of blame to hand around. But did he do the bare minimum of stepping up to the challenge and trying to keep Ontarians safe? I think so. I think in the first wave, he did do that. He definitely, you know, closed schools and tried to move forward with a plan to keep Ontarians safe, to try and isolate and to uh, mitigate uh, the potential challenges and to prepare hospitals for surges and, and to try and get PPE and stuff like that. I, I, I think, you know, he should be commended for that. And I think the poll numbers show that he was commended for that. My challenge is that since the first wave, I believe everything else has been pretty much rhetoric to have Doug Ford continue to uh, say and do the things that he wants to say to look like a strong leader during uh, a global crisis. And I don't think he's delivered on any of those things. I think he's said a lot of stuff, and I don't think he's done any of those things that he said he was going to do. And I'll give you a couple of examples, because there was a commission that he uh, that he ordered in the middle of the summer to do a report to talk about the things that we could have done better in long-term care homes and to come up with recommendations. There were different bodies that did similar work. They came back with, with reports saying, you know, they needed to get w- rid of ward rooms. This, uh, this required more investment in long-term care homes. We needed to improve HVAC systems. We needed to increase the number of, uh, of staff and prevent them from moving uh, from one place to another because they were doing part-time work for uh, just above minimum wage. Uh, all these things that these commissions and, and committees studied and said they had to do. And then he didn't do them, Right. We know that the vast majority of deaths in Ontario from COVID are happening in long-term care homes with people in their 80s and 90s and early 100s. And yet, when we finally got the opportunity to vaccinate everybody, instead of vaccinating the population that was 85% of the deaths, they had this other plan that, you know, sort of spread it out to different groups. And they, 
you know, are using their hospitals to do it, but they didn't have a centralized plan. And so he's responsible for the additional deaths and the additional suffering that people faced since the first wave ended because he did not listen to the advice. It shows that he says, I defer to the doctors, but he doesn't. He does make decisions and tells the doctors this is the decision that it's going to be. And the deputy uh, uh, health officer of Ontario said as such, right? He's like, oh, I just look at whatever it says, tells me to say here, right? So, you know, Doug Ford has a lot of responsibility here, especially with schools. Uh, the Ontario Liberal Party had a plan to reopen schools safely by adding more teachers and more spaces so that we could be more separated and uh, increase the HVAC systems in these schools. And Doug Ford just ignored it. Right. He says all the things that he wants to say to make it seem like he's doing the right things, but he's actually not. Right. He had every ability to, if he wanted, to pick up the phone and call, um, you know, Pfizer for more uh, um, vaccinations and, and actually pay for them. But then he didn't do it. And, you know, we were talking about tens of thousands of vaccines um, in the early, early days of December and January. And, you know, the sky was falling because we couldn't get all of them as quickly as we possibly could. And now we're talking about millions and millions of vaccines coming in every week, right? We were, you know, talking about completely separate things here. But I think reopening the economy, um, preventing the second wave, being slow to act on, on uh, advice, all these things are going to be things that Doug Ford needs to own. The fact that he hasn't spent over $7 billion of federally allocated funds to support businesses, to support families in Ontario. Um, because what? He wants to try and balance the budget at some point or say that he didn't spend as much money as he actually did? I mean, what was the point of that, right? Spend the money that the federal government has given you already to deal with the pandemic. He talks about being pro-business. He didn't have a pro-business um, COVID policy until last month. He didn't have a thing to support businesses until he got the federal government to, to pay for something like that. He still refuses to do sick days. He got rid of mandatory sick days that the Ontario Liberals introduced before the last election, and he still hasn't brought them back. And he says that the federal government has a policy, which is a temporary policy because of COVID, and that the provincial government doesn't have to do anything because of that. So, you know, like to my comment earlier, if you're not going to do something positive, why are you there? Get out of the way. Let other people who actually want to do positive things for the people of this province run the government. Right. Um, but, you know, he's still stuck on his slogans and he's still proud to say that he's fighting for the little guy and, and all that other garbage. But exactly what people is he fighting for? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the real question. I think um, I did approve of uh, someone who's part of the Ontario Liberal Party myself. I, uh, I didn't vote for Doug Ford back in 2018. I remember his uh, provincial government being quite mediocre before the pandemic happened. I mean, I remember the, the biggest scandal right before the before COVID took over. You remember the license plates? How, uh, how everyone was freaking about the license plate? Uh, and I think he did take the right approach in the first wave. I mean, uh, he opened up the economy slowly. He had the three different phases. So phase one was May, then phase two was June, and... But I think what he really should have done is when the second wave started, he should have put the rest of Ontario under lockdown when uh, Toronto went to lockdown on November 23rd of last year. I think that probably would be the better thing. And um, with the second lockdown, I think he probably should have waited until like this period now to start opening up things again, at least. like. So I've been up in my cottage, which is like in Huron Curve, so much more rural area. So it's just, um, 
Doug Ford's, I, I don't really know the legacy of what COVID is going to be in Ontario. I mean, we're just entering the third wave now, which some people are saying might be the worst one. I, I really hope it isn't because we have uh, four or five different vaccines. So, <laughs> so I'm trying my best to be positive. Uh, my grandma finally got vaccinated uh, along with my mother. Um, so that, that's been really nice for me and so on. So it, it is just interesting to reflect and, uh, the, the particular, it, it is sort of hard to balance. I can, I can understand. I would not want to be a, a leader right now, especially like Doug Ford, because you also have to balance economic, but also healthcare concerns at the same time. And that's just, that's not a decision I would not want to make. So if there is a third lockdown, which I think uh, it is a possibility at this point, um, it, that's going to be a very hard decision, but. Every, no one's going to be happy regardless of what uh, Duck Ford does in Ontario. And I have no idea what the legacy of this is going to be yet because we don't know the full picture. So, Michael, is there anything you would like to add? Yeah, so it's very interesting you pointed out, like uh, from Alvin, you talked about how 80% of the deaths is con- uh, concentrated on long-term care homes. So this article, it does uh, concentrate on that. They said that that is specifically the major downfall of what uh, Doug Ford's handling of this pandemic is without focusing on the concentration of lowering down those cases in long-term care homes, you're not focusing on the main problem. And it's very interesting you point that out. From my perspective, because I am not from Canada, I'm from Malaysia. So Malaysia, their cases are... They come from everywhere, you know. In Malaysia is a very Islamic state. A lot of cases come from mosque. But the government had a different response where they're saying that we should shut down all essential businesses or uh, except for grocery stores and uh, restaurants that do takeout instead of focusing on the main problem, which is from the mosque. And this is something of a similar case that applies to uh, Ontario, which is the long-term care homes. And it's very interesting to see that this article says it's a middling performance. I think that every country has its own issues that they have to deal with during the pandemic. But it's also clear, when you know where the issue is, why are you not doing anything about it? And it's exactly like you said, Alvin, like, you know, if you're not trying to bring a positive consequence, why are you running? However... You know, Doug Ford, you have to give him credit for something that, you know, he's still persevering in this pandemic. You know, a lot of people don't really want to be in his shoes right now, especially handling such a big position. But it's also the case where none of us want to be in his shoes right now. Yeah, exactly. So it's tough to say whether Doug Ford really is doing a good job. I don't think he is. I think there's definitely room for improvement. I think we can all agree on that. He's doing better than Jason Kenney, I will say. I think that's it's a low bar to set there. So Definitely a low bar to set there. Yeah. I was about to ask you, um, Alvin, since you're a big advocate for education all that, I wanted to know your thoughts on uh, just sort of how Doug Ford has reopened up the economy after the second wave and then um, reopening schools. Do you think he's done a good job there or... I mean, no, because I will tell you, my kids are going through the system right now, and we lost a semester, basically, uh, from the first shutdown and the first wave in 2020, and we had months and months and months to think about how were we going to handle 
um, reopening schools, right? How are we going to handle online learning? How are we going to handle uh, asynchronous learning? How are we going to handle synchronous learning or hybrid learning? And and our teachers going to get more training? None of that happened. <laughs> Everything that happened in the first wave, they just said, oh, we'll just do it again. Just use Google uh, Meet instead of Zoom or instead of um, you know, desire to learn's bright space, which the provincial government pays for. I don't understand why my kids aren't using it yet. You know, I know that there's a problem with having enough teachers trained for it, but you know, how do you expect my six-year-old who was five when this started, um, to sit in front of a screen for six hours a day and actually learn anything? They're not going to learn anything. We haven't figured out exactly how that's going to work. Um, but there were recommendations from educators, from unions, from uh, the boards in terms of how to do it, and it required more investment. And Doug wasn't willing to invest in it. So I do want to answer Michael's question, though, around, um, you know, does why why people are thinking that Doug maybe didn't do such a bad job? Because I think generally speaking, um, government response to all of COVID has been sort of lumped together, right? So if you believe as a progressive that Justin Trudeau has been doing a good job and is going to get reelected in the next election, you kind of have to believe that Doug Ford is going to get the same thing, right? That enough people aren't going to make a distinction between Justin getting uh, the vaccines into Canada and Doug distributing the vaccines across Ontario, right? If people feel like they've been vaccinated and that they're safer now, they're going to reward the government that's already in place. Right. And so every government that has had an election and there's been three or four, if you count Newfoundland, which is, I think, still in the middle of their election, um, every incumbent government has been reelected in Canada since the election. Uh, sorry, since uh, the pandemic started. Um, now, obviously, Donald Trump wasn't one, uh, but his performance of handling uh, COVID was so bad that over half a million Americans are dead and, and a significant a number of that is uh, contributed to his inaction. Um, but what you were saying, Andy, around education, I mean, he talks a big game about how important it is and how they're not going to spare any cent or any effort to keep kids safe. It's all BS. It's garbage. He would have invested over the summer in improving the HVAC systems. He would have invested in uh, more online learning tools and and training for for students and teachers uh, and for equipment, um, but he didn't do any of that. So you know, it's all garbage. You know, interestingly, so Andy's told me, and I've done my research myself, that you're an advocate for UBI, so universal basic income. What if if you implement universal basic income that in this economy already, would it make the pandemic less? severe what what would you think about that i i would argue that we already did right i mean uh the canada child benefit uh the ccb is already a form of a basic income for 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 canadians uh and it just happens to be for canadians who have children uh and then you have old age security uh which is essentially a basic income for people who are over 65 so when the pandemic hit and serb came out um, and you started giving it to everybody um, who was unemployed or uh, in in sort of a bad situation, um, then you're increasing significantly the number of people who are living off of government support for a period of time. You can see already 
the numbers coming out, um, the OECD has done a study. They've talked about how the recovery in Canada, it, it never really, it never dipped as badly as it did in other countries because we had ongoing income supports uh, for people in this country. So I will, I will use this as a case study that a basic income, a universal basic income already worked in Canada for this, for this particular thing. And that we're coming out of COVID stronger uh, because of the actions of the federal government. Yeah. And sort of the last question I have related to um, COVID Ontario, just this will be my last thing before we move on to the next topic is sort of um, the vaccine rollout. So it started off very slow because it was, uh, because Trudeau himself didn't encourage enough like uh, domestic production of it here in Canada. And then Pfizer and Mondera, they just, they couldn't deliver the vaccines because he had a lot of vaccine nationalism and production issues. And then we did improve uh, AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson until two weeks ago. And now we're starting to vaccinate up to 50,000 people a day. So what are your thoughts have been on the vaccine role in Ontario in particular? I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I mean, we were pretty late in terms of setting up an online portal for people to sign up. It's not like we didn't know that this was going to happen months ago, right? Yet Ontario was behind Quebec and British Columbia and Alberta and everybody else in terms of setting up an online portal for people to register and, and try and get a vaccine. But listen, I, I don't I don't think that, um, you know, Canada's production of, of vaccines. It, I mean, if you want to point fingers it's difficult not to say that Stephen Harper let um, pharmaceutical companies stop producing in Canada. But to his defense, and I don't like defending Stephen Harper, um, the only reason that those companies were producing vaccine or pr- producing vaccines of any kind in Canada was because the federal government was subsidizing it. So is that what we want to do? Do we want to continue doing that? And maybe we need to because we need to anticipate future domestic demand um, for our own supply and not rely on, um, you know, a government chipping over extra vaccines that they can't use. Right. So, you know, it's a tricky spot to be in and it's a tricky thing to defend while you're not in a pandemic. Right. And why are we spending this money to do all these things now? Could they have done more in terms of making the stockpile of PPE readily accessible? My wife works at uh, the Hospital for Sick Children now. They definitely had enough PPE for a little while, but then they started running out. Um, so, yes, there are definitely things that we can do. But on the vaccine roll in Ontario, I think I would have made different decisions based on the uh, information presented and trying to vaccinate everybody at long-term care homes first to try and prevent as many deaths as possible. Um, but generally speaking, I think it's going to be okay, you know, to quote the star editorial board, probably middling. Um, yeah, they'll probably, they'll pro- I think they'll probably hit their uh, target goal June 1st for everyone. I think, by the way, things are going. But they still so, need to scale up, right? Yeah, I mean, They still need to not, ramp up and get yeah, more still, shots. They still need to. Well, there'll probably be one more vaccine approved in the time before uh, June, by the way, things are going. So, yeah, um, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Uh, Michael, do you want to introduce us to our uh, second topic of discussion? Yeah, sure. That was a great discussion, by the way. But now, we're moving on to our second topic of this episode. This second topic is going to be a little bit grim. It's something that's been trending a lot, and we've been seeing a lot on social media. So, this article is from the Denver Post. It's an opinion piece. And the title, 
The mass shootings in Atlanta are just the latest in a surge of anti-Asian violence. And this article is written by Noah Smith. And to describe what's happening recently. So ever since the pandemic, and the pandemic is originated from uh, Wuhan, China. And the sort of transits to the Western civilization, Western societies from uh, Chinese in China, it's led a surge to the pandemic. And people from those Western societies have been taking it out on a lot of, in the case of Americans, a lot of Asian Americans. So a lot of these targets are on, like a majority of them are on elderly Asian Americans. And it's, this is not just on America. This is happening, you know, it's also happening in Canada. And we've seen very horridly videos that's been happening. Just recently, there's a case that happened in, aside from this Atlanta case, there was a case that just happened very recently to an elderly uh, Asian woman who was fending herself against a, a Caucasian American with a huge wooden stick. And you can see her face. She was really badly bruised. And the response of this is not really good. We are seeing a lot of like organizations stepping up. There is a organization called Stop AAPI Hate. Uh, AAPI standing for Asian Americans Pacific Islanders. And it's a group that tracks a lot of anti-Asian violence. And I want to state this statistic because it's very important. So they tracked about 3,800 reports of hate incidents since the mid of March 2020 when COVID-19, the pandemic, seized the U.S. More than 500 of those came in the first two months of this year, 2021. So... I do want to bring this back to Alvin. You mentioned that, and we had this interview segment before where we talked about this briefly. So Alvin, what are your thoughts about this? I mean, Michael, you said, I think the key word there was reported incidents, right? 3,800 reported in incidents in the last year. Um, how many incidents go unreported, right? How many either acts of violence or hate uh, against Asian Americans or Asian Canadians aren't talked about? Right, because somebody feels that they can't share it with uh, the authorities, or they're embarrassed, or whatever it is. Um, so uh, you know, it's definitely more pervasive than that. Um, and and we can't Canadians often think that we're better than Americans in a lot of ways. Um, I would argue that's true in some areas, uh, but we can't we can't sit on our laurels and think that this would never happen here because it happens here all the time. Right. It, it happened uh, a lot in Vancouver. Uh, I saw an incident in 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 Ottawa. It's happening in Toronto in the Kitchen or Waterloo area. It's happening everywhere. Right. Anywhere Asians happen to live. Um, we are a, a, a minority, a visible minority. Um, and clearly there are rising um, anti-Asian sentiment uh, or it's just becoming more public and more maybe acceptable to those people to, to express um, their, their hatred or their, uh, their bigotry um, in their eyes, which is why they're doing it. Um, but also look at how, you know, these people are cowards, right? I mean, 
they're they're doing it to older elderly people who they think they can get away with it from right like if they saw um you know there's there's a there's a lot of uh asian american actors who are now fighting against this um down in the states um but they wouldn't you know they don't seem to be willing to do this in front of people that uh, could potentially fight back right so you know they're being cowardice but I saw something interesting over the weekend, and if you or your listeners get a chance to watch it, watch John Oliver's opening segment uh, on Last Week Tonight, where he talks about um, uh, the history of of anti-Asian sentiment in in the U.S. um, and what people are saying now about these acts of violence and potentially even defending um, the people who are committing them. Uh, as not being out of race uh, is is just adding to the fact that we are refusing to acknowledge or accept that it is happening and it actually makes it worse right I mean calling it the China virus others the others the entire group of people right kung flu like all these things are derogatory towards I mean they're saying it's because you know they're being they're just stating a fact and that's where it came from. But what you're doing is you're attacking a people and you're attacking anyone you identify with those people. So if you happen to look like you're Chinese, then that's enough for them to be able to feel good about attacking you in some way. Right. Well, I'm, I'm a white guy myself. Um, so I do believe I white privilege and all that. Uh, the one thing I just wanted to say is uh, I recently had American history class and we were talking about the Chinese head tax and how um, we're also talking about Japanese internment in the Second World War. And it is sort of very interesting to trace back the origins of um, racism came from particularly the historical context uh, and sort of an aftermath of the Civil War and a legacy of the Civil War is grappling with the issue of slavery and how that's affected the United States when it comes to race relations. But I feel almost as if... Uh, the idea of this Chinese head tax and um, they were more favorable towards Japanese immigration because of all these very, very racist reasons I won't go into, but um, it is interesting to sort of reflect upon that. And uh, I had watched, uh, do you know who Daniel Day Kim is? A Korean actor. Yeah. I watched him. He was um, at a congressional hearing and I watched his piece and he said, we're not invisible. There's 23 million of us here. We're 23 million strong. You can't, you can't ignore us. So I, I found that very interesting, just looking back upon the history and how history plays a larger role and how we're sort of still dealing with the aftermath of the stuff like 100, 170 years later. So it's very interesting to reflect back upon. Three so. things I want to talk about really quickly, and I know it's hard for me to be quick. Yeah, but, go ahead. Um, you know, in Canada, we had uh, we also had Japanese internment camps, right? I met David Suzuki. I've got friends whose parents and grandparents were interned. That happened. That happened here in our in people's lifetimes, right? That wasn't that long ago. Um, so we have to realize our own sort of painful history with that and and question, you know, how much something like that would happen again, right? Because I don't think we're that far off. Mm-hmm. And we, we did have the Chinese head tax here yeah. in uh, Canada, very famously in uh, BC. Um, yeah. Secondly, on Yellow Peril, right? There's this... Uh, and look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about. But yellow peril is a is a thing. It's a real fear of Asians bringing disease uh, and things unknown um, to white societies. Right. That's a real thing that people have a fear of. 
and the last one I want to talk about is how society, how North American Western civilization has um, created a model minority myth around Asians uh, in general as a way to further divide and separate other people of color, right? To put down black and brown people more, to try and create a more subservient or more submissive um, uh, segment of the population in Asians by saying, if you want our acceptance, you have to sort of, you know, shut your mouth and, and take and, and take your abuse. All of this to sort of increase and maintain white privilege uh, in Western civilization. Oh, absolutely. As a white male myself, I um, I think there is an issue. I am more privileged than other people, and I think I think that's an unfair advantage. So, now I want to bring an interesting insight on this, and I don't think that this is considered. So, there's tension already, though, between America, between Canada, with China. This is well known, right? It happened with the trade issue. Remember the trade war? It happened with the territorial disputes that's happening with Taiwan, Hong Kong. Right now with Canada, you know, ever since that, you know, that particular case where they had arrested the, well, I want to say the, uh, one, one of one the daughters, the yeah. owner of, yeah, of Huawei. And ever since then, tensions has been rising and it's continued to rise when this uh, pandemic became more apparent. Uh, China's case of reparations for causing this pandemic, because it, they did cause this. We have to be clear on this. They did cause this. It's by doing mask diplomacy. We talked about this, where they send masks to foreign countries as a way of you know helping them with their PPE and all. But it's also interesting to point out that we talk about this, you know, there's a there's definitely an apparent hate against, you know, Asian Americans with any sort of link to their own government. When we're talking about this to national Chinese, there's a lot of more cases that's been happening. Just recently, me and Andy talked about Chong Pei Wu and the case with uh, Hong Kong, with Taiwan. You know, right now there's so much riots happening in Hong uh, in Hong Kong. And we're seeing a lot of China's, you know, their handling of, in front of our eyes, we're seeing a lot of what China is doing with the riots in Hong Kong, trying to take back Taiwan, you know, their tensions with Canada, their tensions with America. Now, the pandemic itself is already a source of, well, not the first source, definitely the latest source of people trying to hate on Asian Americans. And this case of Atlanta is no different. I personally don't think that, well, I actually do think, I think that the guy who initiated this attack on these massage parlors at Atlanta, it's, it's, a, it's not just a sex addiction, uh, sex addiction on his case. It's also about how he, you know, there's a sort of fetish uh, of Asian women. But I do want to bring this back to China. So China, they're seeing all these cases happening, like you, you mentioned, Alvin, happening a lot to Chinese Americans. But this case of China and their such national unity, if you're Chinese American, China's not going to care about you. This is a fact. They're not going to care about you. And it's a sad reality because 
their Chinese national unity is very strong. And this is the sense of alienation that I do want to bring up. Chinese Americans, they don't feel at home if they ever visit their relatives in China. They don't. They're Chinese Americans. Chinese people in China alienate them. And this is the sad case. You know, like you mentioned again, Alvin, they're a visible minority in not just America, but in Canada. And they also don't feel at home when they do try to go back to China. So in this case, it's a really sad reality because they don't feel welcome here. They don't feel welcome at their home. So I do want to bring this case, like, and I do want to hear your opinions out, uh, about this, Alvin, and also Andy. Is there a solution to this? Is there really a solution to this? I mean, I will always try to find the solution, but you know, you say something that reminds me of what my mom says, right? I mean, she's lived here longer than she ever lived back home, even though they say back home. And she's never felt that back home was her home anymore. Once she, you know, at some point she got, she was here in Canada for much longer. And then she said, this is my home. When I go back, it's not, I don't feel comfortable anymore. I don't feel um, part of that society, part of that, you know, culture. It's part of her heritage and her background. Um, but she's Canadian. She's Canadian through and through. And it's frustrating because, you know, we'll cross. I remember a story. I remember a time when we crossed the uh, the border at Niagara Falls just to go shopping. Like we, we went to go buy stuff from an outlet mall or whatever it was uh, in Buffalo. And it was, um, oh, who who in this car uh, are Canadian? And I'm like, well, everybody's Canadian. So we all said, yeah, we're all Canadian. And then and then the border guard said, no, 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 no. Which one of you were born in Canada? And then so I put my hand up and the other people put their hand up. But then some of us weren't. Some of us weren't born in Canada. So they said, OK, well, you have to get out. You have to get out and you have to get questioned. And I'm like, what the hell difference does it make? If someone was born in Canada or not, if they're Canadian citizens, we don't treat Americans, at least in this scenario, uh, didn't treat uh, Canadians as a Canadian as a Canadian. Um, and we need to be careful that we're not doing that here. So what's the solution? I mean, Michael, I think we need to keep talking about this. We need to understand that this is an existing problem and that there are biases against people who are not, you know, Anglo-Saxon Canadians <laughs> and that, uh, you know, that sort of settler community uh, perceives themself, uh, themselves um, as the majority, as they are, um, to be, you know, the real Canadians. And so unless we keep talking about these challenges uh, that non-white uh, Canadians have, um, the longer it's going to take for people to realize that it is a, a problem and to look for a solution. Yeah, uh, my thoughts on it as <laughs> as a white person, I do think what we need to do is sort of, I think the biggest thing this goes back to is education, like sort of not desensitization. It's a sort of, it always goes back to education. I think you should always start off with children very young and teach them just about the effects of racism and not, I think, I think what they need to do and improve is teach kids more about the effects of colonialism. And um, this also ties into issues uh, with the Aboriginal, Aboriginal or Indigenous population in Canada, and that's that's always been an issue. I think I think what we need to do more in Canadian history classes, in particular, 
is talk about the aftermath of colonialism, racism. I mean, I remember grade 10 history here in Canada. We, we did talk about it very briefly, but we were sort of more focused on sort of white precipitation, like the first uh, world war and the second world war. And I think we really need to focus more on those store individual stories of Asian Canadians, black Canadians, uh, just all sorts of different Canadians from around the world. I think we really, really need to focus on more. And education is a very, very big part of that, I think. So um, I do want to bring up, so one uh, wrap-up question of this topic. Do you think that this rise of uh, hate against uh, Asian Americans, Asian Canadians will lower down after the pandemic? Will it? No. I don't think it will. And the problem is, is that our society right now is so divided and our consumption of media through social media, online platforms, uh, and even traditional news outlets is so tailored to reinforce our existing political beliefs and biases. People have found communities um, for whatever perverse ideology or belief that they have, and it's being constantly reinforced. <laughs> and that's maybe a downside, a down way to end this, uh, this pod today. But I think until we find a way to either regulate or um, tear down some of the barriers that have been created online, um, and are able to have a more open public discourse amongst each other again um, without being tribal about it, uh, it's going to continue and it's only going to get worse. I mean, 74 million people voted for Donald Trump after four years of Donald Trump being president. And the Proud Boys are from Canada. <laughs> the, like these hate groups started in Ontario and Alberta and imported into exported to the U S right. We are not immune to it. We have crazy people like Derek Sloan being elected members of parliament. We have people being elected in Toronto um, uh, who, you know, don't believe in, uh, in masking. Right. I mean, it's everywhere. Faith Goldie came in third place in the Toronto mayoral election. That's nuts. And she's a Nazi. You know what I mean? Like, until we make it completely socially unacceptable to have those types of extreme views, and we crack down on wherever and however they are talking to each other and spreading this hate, um, then it'll only get worse. That was definitely a down way to end this interview. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a great insight, though. It's very great insight. So I hope that everyone who listens to this podcast do understand our opinions here. And our opinions are our own, you know. And I hope that you do find a lesson here today because the topics we talked about are quite grim for this episode. But it's really important. It's paramount that we do learn, that we do understand from different people with different opinions about this. So, Alvin, where can our audience find you on social media or like know about how do they contact you in any way? 
Uh, right, just as we finished talking about the uh, <laughs> the terrible part of social media. But anyway, I mean, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Alvin Tejo, one word, A-L-V-I-N-T-E-D-J-O. Uh, you can find me on Facebook as well, Instagram. I don't really TikTok. I have an account, but it's, uh, I guess, more for scrolling. Um, I generally have a website, alvintejo.ca. I don't think it's really up right now, but if and when I do run in the next election, if, again, big if, um, you'll see the information on there. But uh, yeah, my DMs are open. So if you want to tweet at me and uh, and DM me because uh, you want to reach out, uh, always happy to chat. So everyone, thank you for listening to our fourth episode of our podcast with our guest, Alvin Tejo. So if you, oh yeah, yeah. Alvin. I just want to say, I, I also co-host a podcast called Ontario Loud at Ontario Loud. Um, you can, we also have a website, but you can check it out weekly. Give, give us a listen. We're, we're actually off the air this week. So uh, I will definitely tell our listeners to uh, listen to this pod this week and then uh, they can catch us on, uh, on the regular pod starting next week again. That's great. Thank you so much. <laughs> so everyone, if you want to follow us on our social media, our Twitter account is called at the global over. And thank you for listening to our fourth episode. I hope that everyone have a safe week. Do practice social distancing. And again, I do hope you did learn something from this podcast. And I would like to thank again our guest, Alvin Tejo. And I hope that you join us on our next episode.